name The mountains shake and crumble At your name The oceans roar and tumble Name. Angels will bow, the earth will rejoice, your people cry out. Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name, filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name. The morning breaks in glory At your name Creation sings your story At your name The angels will bow The earth will rejoice your people cry out, oh Lord of all the earth, we shout your name, shout your name, filling up the skies with endless praise, endless praise, Yahweh, Yahweh, we love to shout your name, oh Lord, there's no one like our God. Oh, there is no one like our God. We will praise you, praise you. There's no one like our God. We will sing, we will sing. There is no one like our God. We will praise you, praise you. There's no one like our God. We will sing, we will sing. There is no one like our God. We Way. It's good to see all your faces this morning. Uh, if you were in the room, you are more than welcome to stand and worship with us. You don't have to. You can stay seated if you like. But if you'd like to stand and worship, uh, join in with us.
I find my shelter in you, my God. And there you give me rest. You are my refuge and my safe place. My strength is in your name. And though I stumble, you won't let me fall. And you direct my every step. You hold me in your hand. How can it be? How can it be, God, that you delight in the details of my life with love that conquers my every fear? Your kindness draws me near, and though I stumble, you won't let me fall.
melody of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, a name above every other name Jesus, the only one that could ever say Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Oh, we live for you
you're standing, please remain standing. Anyone who'd like to join us for the reading of scripture. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Amen. All it takes is a moment All it takes is a word To bring light to the dark And give life to this heart You are hope, you are peace to my soul you're the one who sustains me you're the voice speaking truth i could search all the earth to find something of worth but all that i need is in you captive my heart's awakened You are my delight Overtaken by your amazing Love I can't Where you are, there is freedom. 
all it takes is worth. God, that's our prayer this morning, God, that we would be able to delight in who you are. God, it's so easy to get our eyes on the things of this world, the, the chaos, the craziness around us, the stuff that's going on. God, we ask for that you would help us to look at you. God, that you would be our delight, God, that you would be our rest, God, that you would be our all in all. God, that we could run to your feet and just rest at your feet and to know that you're good, to know that you're merciful, that you're gracious and you accept us. God, that's our prayer, God. Draw us to you, God. Draw us to you. Keep our eyes on you, Stain of 
all our sin and shame and he's asked us to come and rest oh rest in our God sing it out you reign you reign forevermore Miss the kids to GPS. Hey, Caitlin, little drummer girl, come here for a second. Come here, don't be shy. I know you're not shy, but don't respond to me like that, okay? Caitlin's getting married. Wait, hold on. We're still getting married, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we're still getting married. Woo! She's getting married. When are you getting married? November 6th. November 6th. I know Julie and I were invited. We're going to be there. Yeah. Is the food going to be good? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, then. Casa <laughs> Ole. Yes. Anyway, congratulations. Be praying. I was thinking about it as I'm watching her this morning, and then Josh is up here playing. I thought about, you can go now. You don't have to stand up here and stare at them. But I was just thinking about all of the students that have grown up in our group that God has allowed us to disciple. And Man, Kaylin, I prayed for you. You were going to be, uh, you had all these things in life. And look how God lays your life out. You know, I was thinking about Matthew Culbertson. He wanted to be a forestry service guy, and now he's a chaplain at uh, one of our local jails, and Josh and Allie end up in full-time ministry, and Kaylin knows how to fly a helicopter in case she wanted to be a paramedic and all these different things, and now she ends up going to be living in Livingston, right? I know all about your life. You just don't know that I do. But we're just so proud of you guys, and uh, congratulations, hon. We'll be praying for you. Be praying for her. You know, marriage is easy, isn't it, folks? 
Why did you laugh? So, but uh, having said that, we have a, uh, this week is our student retreat uh, and uh, our fall retreat, and we've been, they've been meeting, they were at Piney Woods all weekend, and now they are in the student room this morning while we're meeting, the, the staff and the students are in there, and they're having their own little service wrapping up their weekend. So we're going to just take a moment, we're going to pray for them, because as you just saw, and, and there are so many, we, you know, it's easy to mention Zach and Matthew and Josh as they come back and Kaylin as she's here, but there are, there are hundreds, thousands of kids that have come through our youth group that are all over the place, walking with God or not or struggling, and you know they're still our kids and we want to pray for them and that the, that the seed that has been planted as a result of, uh, of your faithfulness continues to grow. So let's just take a moment and let's pray for that. Father God, we thank you. Uh, for what you have done through Carpenter's Way in the past. And we thank you for these young men and women that are represented by those that were on the stage this morning. And we think of Kaylin and her fiancé and the uh, Collins family as they prepare for this wonderful event coming up in a few weeks that you would bless them and be with them. And Lord, I pray that you would continue. I thank you for Kaylin's love for you and uh, how she wants to continue to walk with you. And Lord Jesus, uh, we pray for those uh, that have come through our ministry, those that know you, those that are do not, that you would remind them of the things that they learned and draw them back to yourself. And Father, we pray this morning also for our present students that are in the student room right now with the staff and the adults, and they are learning about who you are, Father. And I thank you for a staff and, and Adam who, uh, and Amber who want to teach uh, who you are, God, not just what you can do for us, but who you are. And we pray you would bless them this morning right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, before we jump into this morning's message, um, periodically people leave their Bibles here and we come across them and we'd like to give them back to you, but they don't have names in it. You know, 80 years ago, your grandparents, their whole history of your family was written in their Bibles. Now so many of us have digital ones when we buy a new one and they're so inexpensive that we don't put our names in it. All of that is to say, would you put, put, please put your names in your Bibles so that if you accidentally leave them here, and uh, we can call you and get them back to you. This is a beautiful Bible, uh, and uh, it is free to whoever lost it. Uh, and the only identification marks is it has these really cool tabs of each book of the Bible. So if you lost this, um, please come get it. Um, and uh, yeah, we would love for you to have that. And then, did you want me to bend over and fall over face forward? I have a bad back. It's, it's, it, you have 30 of these on yourself. Different discussion. This is a $20 bill, and you didn't write your name on it either. If you lost a $20 bill, please come get it. If you don't, I'm not going down to get that because I won't get back up the stairs. But if you take that and it's not yours, Ananias is... Oh, you are awesome, Miss Glass. But uh, if you take it and it's not yours, you will drop dead, just like Ammonites and Sapphire. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, just, just try to label the stuff that belongs to you, except the dollar bills. You don't want your name going all over the place. But we did find that this morning, so uh, we want to get that back to you. A couple things. Operation Christmas Child is coming up. Uh, the week, uh, it's, the, it's the Monday before Thanksgiving. That whole week is going to be when we have the collection center going on here. So put it on your schedule. Plan on being a part. Next week, we're going to start uh, getting more into it. You're going to see soon the boxes are going to be here, and we're going to uh, fill the entryway with that. And uh, that, is, that is the most, the biggest thing we do is by way of evangelism each year here in-house and with our church. So we'll need guys to help on that Monday uh, to lift boxes into the trucks. Uh, so that is upcoming. 
And uh, I want to thank you for how faithful you give and you participate in ministry. Um, we couldn't, we, we wouldn't, we couldn't do this without you. And uh, it has been amazing over the last two years with COVID and everything else and people coming and going and staying home and watching online. So many of you even online give. And uh, it means a lot because it allows us to not only continue the ministry in-house, but also the missionaries that we support. When we haven't been able to go to them, we have sent them resources with which to buy food as well as to do outreach. And uh, that's, all, that's all possible because of you. And uh, you haven't heard me for a long time just say, hey, we're falling behind. That's because we're doing fine because you're giving faithfully. So keep it up. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I, I just want to encourage you to be all in on kingdom work, especially now. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot going on in the world, and never has there been a time when more hope was needed. So um, I, I also want to tell you, I was thinking this week as we're going through Galatians, what a privilege it is. I remember when I was 17 years old, and I, I surrendered my life to the Lord, and God called me to go to be trained to, to, to be in ministry, and I wanted to be a student pastor. That was my life's goal. <clears throat> I was one of those who always said, it's not a stepping stone, and here I am preaching at 54. I mean, I was 17 when I started ministry, and uh, the Lord just opened doors for me and, and made it clear that he wanted me there. And it is a privilege to be 54 years old, 40-some years in ministry, and be teaching Galatians. My, my biggest fear as I go through this, and poor Julie has to put up with me all the time talking about this, is I don't want you to miss the meat of this. This is so incredibly freeing, and it's it's joyous. And uh, Chad wrote a song that they sung this morning, and I just think it Annie leaned over to me and said, this song was written for Selah's voice. Uh, Selah's the young lady, Selah Rose, who plays the uh, guitar and sings. But it's just about, it's called Captivated. Is that the name of it, or is it My Delight? It's called My Delight. It should be Captivated. You named it wrong, but the song is very good. <laughs> but the whole idea is, the whole idea is, is man, you are my delight. And, and I got to tell you, I think most of us who grew up in the church um, have worked really hard at being Christian. Um, and, and the reason we have to work hard is because God is in our delight. You know, that was the intention, is that we are so in love with the Lord, we want to be with Him. And I know that's hard because you don't see Him. And, and actually, the reason I think it's difficult is because we treat, we treat walking with God a lot like we treat everything else. It's, it's, it's purely a discipline. You know, you make time for church, make time for Bible study, make time for this, as if it's not a joy. But you know, when the world is starting to go... Uh, that crazy. There's only hope in God. Really, he's the only steady. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our government's not the same. The Democratic Party isn't the same. The Republican Party isn't the same. Our government isn't the same. Or maybe it is. We just don't recognize it. It's just not the same. Our, our parents get older, and they get sick, and then they pass on, and our kids get older and no longer need us. That's not my kids. My kids are incredibly needy. But everybody... I'm just kidding, Anna. But the, the, the fact is, life changes, doesn't it? I mean, it just changes, and it's like, oh, man. You know, I, I, the age never bothered me, and it still doesn't really bother me until I think about the fact that in about four weeks, I'm going to turn 55. That's not a problem for me. The 50s are great. But when I think about that, I'm only five years from 60. Now, though, there's a lot of you that are over 60, and, and I, what I'm going to say now is going to offend you, but when I was a little kid, 60 was old. I am now realizing 60's young. <laughs> Except when I watch the news and it's like, oh, this actor died. He was 60. Oh, he had a good life. And I'm like, wait, no, 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 his life isn't over. 
I mean, I'm only five years from that, and, and it's, it's just weird how things change, but what's great is one thing does not, and that's God. And as you walk with Him, and you fellowship with Him, and you get to know Him, death is just a doorway through which you walk into the presence of God. And that's a cool thing. Yes, it's scary. I'm not taking away from that. I don't ever want to play. I remember when uh, I would have missionaries as a kid talk about how they look forward to death. I don't look forward to death. I look forward to what happens after death. And that's because I be it's become personal in the last few years to me. It's just become so personal and so intimate. And I, I, uh, uh, I, I think that, that one of the mistakes that we have made is we have turned this into a doctrinal conversation instead, instead of a personal conversation. We say to the lost, this is a relationship with God, it's not a religious move. But in many ways, the church acts like it's a program, and it's a religious move. Uh, it's a program to be discipled, and there's a program to learn doctrine, and there's a program to learn the Bible. And while those things may be necessary, um, they are also dangerous to some degree. I love, if, if you've been a carpenter's way for any number of years, you know that one of my favorite sections of Scripture is the beginning of Revelation where Jesus writes letters, personal letters to seven churches, real churches that existed. And he writes those letters, and he has, he has John send those letters to the churches, record them for him, and the pastors of those churches read them. And <clears throat> while I grew up hearing about those letters, and for those of you who also grew up hearing the seven letters to the churches in Revelation... Oftentimes, pastors would say, I think that the church today is most like uh, uh, Laodicea or other churches. Well, my feeling is just an opinion is that we're most like Ephesus. And so I have read it to you a lot through the years, but I want to read for you what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus. And, and for those of you who, who don't know this, Ephesus is arguably Paul's favorite church. Um, it is a special church. Uh, it is in many ways, the ideal church. It had Paul as a pastor, Timothy, the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, we know as First and Second Timothy, he was set as a pastor there. Paul, <clears throat> also John, the apostle, the th first, second, and third John, those letters are written from John to the church of Ephesus. He refers to them as my dear children. I mean, they had a hall of fame of pastors. And this church was faithful. Of all the churches, when Paul is ending his ministry in Acts, you remember, he's about to go back to Jerusalem. The elders of the church of Ephesus meet with him, and they weep together because they know that Paul is probably not going to survive going back to Jerusalem. And so there's this, there's this corporate thing, and, and Paul warns them that false teachers are going to rise am among them. Well, it's about 40 years after Paul says goodbye to the elders of Ephesus that Jesus, through the apostle John, writes this letter to them, found in Revelation chapter 2. I know all the things that you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know that you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. And that is a great resume. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do what you did at first. If you don't repent, though, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. And, and, the, and the condemnation there is not that they would cease to exist, but the lampstand, <clears throat> that's what the church is. 
The church is a lampstand, and it holds up the light of Jesus Christ. The light of the world is Jesus, and so what we do is we hold up the lampstand. And his threat to them is, if you don't turn back to me and love me, and as a result love each other like you did at first, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You're going to be completely irrelevant in the world. I mean, what an amazing thing. It took them 40 years from going to this Hall of Fame church to this church that doesn't love God or his people anymore. And while they, I am sure that they claimed to, Jesus, who is watching them, says that they didn't. This church had been so faithful and strong, but over time, over a 40-year period, they had become, now this is where I need you to listen, and you can be critical, and you can disagree with me, but I want you to think this morning, and wrestle through with me for the next 30 minutes, because this is super important stuff. But this church, over that 40-year period, had gone from being in love with God and his servant that administered to them to being in love with Christianity, the religion, the things of Christianity. It's happened. It happened to Ephesus. and It happened to Paul and Barnabas, when, or Peter and Barnabas, when Paul had to rebuke them because later in their ministry they refused to eat with Gentiles. And Paul said, you were the one given the vision from heaven. We are the ones telling the Gentiles they don't have to be Jewish, and you won't even eat with them. They fell in love. It's said in in one of the sentences in Acts that the reason he did this at the beginning of Galatians, the reason that Peter stopped and Barnabas stopped eating is because they did not want to be rejected by the Jerusalem believers. They fell in love with the church at the expense of loving God. It happened to Ephesus. It happened to Peter and Barnabas. And it had happened now to the churches in the Galatian region. And, and I'm going I'm to get into this with you, but what I want to point out to you is in chapter 5, and, and most of you who've been in church know that Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit's presence in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. We quote them all the time. But I would like to argue to you, with you this morning that there is a fruit of being religious and not in love with God. Even the right religion. Even salvation through faith in Christ alone. There is a fruit, a, a, an outgrowth, there is a, there is a symptom of what happens to a body of believers when they fall more in love with Christianity and the culture of that at the expense of God himself. The uh, Gentile churches in Galatia, and that's what they were, mostly Gentiles, had become convinced that there was more for them spiritually than just being saved by faith. And immediately when I say that, your your brain's going to go, yeah, how silly is that? But I want you to understand that we're all capable. In fact, our flesh wants that. They just thought, they had become convinced that if they became more Jewish, they would become better Christians. They still believed in Jesus the Messiah, but they believed that since Yahweh worship went all the way back, if we become like the Jews, if we we start following the religion of Judaism, we will add that on top of our Christianity, and man, how good, how spiritual, how holy will we be? And in today's text, you're going to see the very same thing that Jesus wrote to the Ephesian church was true in the Galatian church. They no longer trusted God for everything. They worked for it themselves or were adding that to the work of God. And the second thing, they no longer even liked Paul anymore. They didn't like it. They didn't like anybody who was like him because he was standing in the way 
of what they felt was making them more holy by sticking with the gospel. So as Paul writes them this letter, he says in chapter 2 that I am writing this to defend, argue, or as it says in Jude, contend for the faith. What Paul is doing in Galatians is he is wrestling people down back to the mat and saying, what are you doing? Because they have lost their focus. Now mind you, they've only gone this far. It's not like they're worshiping Satan. It's not like they're becoming Jehovah's Witness. It's not like they're joining a cult. But they're coming this far. A quarter turn of the screwdriver. The problem is, Paul says that a quarter turn of the screwdriver is a totally different gospel. You see, it's all Jesus or it isn't Jesus at all. It's either all Jesus or all you. There's no mostly Jesus and partially you. And that was the struggle with the church of Ephesus. That was the struggle with Peter wanting to be accepted by the church. And that's the struggle that they had in Galatia. They wanted to help God. And I would argue that was the problem with Eve in the Garden of Eden. It says that when she saw that the fruit was delicious looking and it was desirable to what? Make her what? Wise. That she could be like God knowing good and evil. That's a religious decision. When it would better her family, 1 Timothy tells us, she was deceived into eating the fruit that she had been warned not to eat. And she took it to make her wise not to rebel against God. She was just disobedient in her self-help. She gave to Adam and he ate as well. I want to argue with you that Satan is not that creative. He just does it differently in every context, but he does the exact same thing, making us think we can better ourselves. And the problem is, when he met you, when you met him, you were spiritually dead. You can't better yourself. A dead body can't raise itself. In fact, even Jesus, it says, was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. The fact is we forget that we can't help this along. Somewhere along the line, we become better people, we become better Americans, we become better East Texans, better Southern, and it's all married together. And so we think that we are, well, you've been to funerals here where you have somebody who never donned the door of a church but maybe in junior high went to a VBS and walked an aisle. And so at the funeral, while you saw no fruit of the Spirit but he was faithful to his wife, that man is declared as a good Christian man. And you know exactly what that means because you've all heard it. You see, Christianity has become an adjective on how you live, not the noun of who you are. Are you following me so far? You see, being a follower of Jesus is a noun, not an adjective. It is what you become at the moment of salvation. That's what we've been studying for the last three, uh, several weeks. And Galatians 3 was all about it. This letter is such a great lawyer's fight for what is the faith. It's contending for the faith. And if you remember in chapter 3, the first thing we learned is that salvation, or better stated, adoption, Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of humanity, not so that they didn't go to hell like the evangelist often says, that's a nice byproduct, but so, according to Ephesians 1, we could be adoptable. So Jesus came Salvation, adoption, or a right relationship with God can only be had through faith in Christ's work on the cross alone. That's the first thing we learned in, in Galatians chapter 3. The second thing we learned is that you can be confident in being right with God if you put your faith in Christ alone, which results in being baptized into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. You can be confident of that, not because you're a good person or you're a church attender, but because God promised it. See, 
So as, as uh, we hear this song about, um, as we sing about loving God, and we sing about knowing God, <clears throat> I think one thing that, that and, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, and I'm, I'm so afraid it's going to go over all of our heads, but the problem that we face in modern Christendom is we've lost the bigness, holiness, awesomeness of God. We really have. When, when we think of God, we think of, of Jesus going, oh, I love you so much, please don't go to hell. That, that's not who Jesus is. I, I think somehow I'm going to fit this into the Christmas four weeks before Christmas. I think I want to do a series, and I'm, I'm working on it this week, called Emmanuel, which you know the word means God is with us. Because that infant in the manger who had to be wiped clean, who, who, whose diaper, and I don't know what they did in biblical times for that, had to be changed, was holy God. Well, he, he didn't float. That's the problem. He didn't float. He didn't glow at night like a nightlight. He was just a baby, but he was still holy God. And it's easy to look at him or hear how Jesus loves you and forget that he also will condemn all who reject him. Jesus talked a lot about hell, not so that we could understand hell, but so that we can understand that condemnation is coming for anyone who by faith does not put their hope in him alone. There are no, I guess I'll let you in, into heaven. You are either adopted into his family through faith in Christ alone, or you are not. And I think as we've familiarized Jesus as our best friend, and as some write our lover, which are, maybe we can defend those things, I think we've forgotten that he's also God. Like God, God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He, he is the one who spoke into existence all things. He is the one who holds all things together. He spoke into existence even the plan to save us. And he fulfilled it in his own death on the cross. But we can't afford to forget that that was God that hung there dying that day and three days later rose from the dead. And the one that we sin against and don't seem a lot of times to care that we're sinning against him is also the judge. It is almost like in this culture, we're more worried that the church finds out that we've sinned than we are concerned that we are blowing off the love, death, and resurrection of our Lord. It's like we're not even bothered as it relates to God that we've sinned. We're more concerned that our wife caught us looking at porn. And the truth is, he's the only one that matters. After David was confronted by the prophet having committed adultery with Bathsheba and killing her husband, David breaks down and says, I have sinned against God and God alone. And while I have said and I have thought and, and, and we've talked about it on Wednesday nights, well, that's not how Bathsheba felt because her husband's dead. The truth is, that's the relationship that matters after this life. So he falls on his face before a holy God, and I'm not convinced anymore that we fall on our face before a holy God very often. I think we kind of just go, oh, well, I just, I'm just not perfect, just forgiven. We put that bumper sticker on. It's almost like saying, don't expect me not to flip you the bird today. I won't flip you the bird if you don't cut me off. I'm just human after all. It's almost like we don't expect any transformation process to take place. 
And, and that's what's being set up right now for Galatians 5. Coming back to where we're at, the bigness of God is why you can be confident in your salvation if by faith you have put your hope in Him. Because God not only won't lie to you, He can't lie to you. Because He didn't make this promise just to you, He made it to Himself. When Abraham met with God, remember we studied this, when God made the covenant with Abraham, it was He that looked at Jesus and He says, I swear to you that we will never walk back this promise. And if you are a child of God today, that he is not going to reject you if you have the Holy Spirit living within you. While you deserve it, he's not going to do it because he put your sin in Jesus on the cross and he gave you Jesus' righteousness. My problem with much of what's going on today is it seems like we think that we can, we can, take, we, we can just uh, live in a sinful state. I'm not concerned about people who struggle with sin. I'm concerned that there are many who claim the name of Christ who are not struggling with sin. They're committing adultery in the name of happiness. They're feeding their flesh. They're telling people off in the name of politics. They're, they're feeding their flesh that has nothing to do with godliness, but they're doing it, and if you confront them on that, first they leave the church, and then they tell others, I guess they expect me to be perfect. And you're like, I don't, what? More on that in Galatians 5. Because Galatians 5 gives us fruit of the evidence of a true child of God. But in chapter 3, again, we learn that salvation or adoption or right relationship with God is only through faith in Christ alone. Secondly, you can be confident in it because God promised it, and God is holy. The one who saved you isn't just the one who died on the cross. He is the awesome one, the holy one, and he made a promise to himself that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And thirdly, there's two reasons God gave the Old Testament law, and this is lost on the church today. The number one reason is it was to be a strict guardian. Actually, the Greek in that phrase talks about a slave that is a slave master. There's no English correlation to it, so it's very hard to find an illustration. But it's basically the idea that the law is an impersonal guardian. And what it did was it constantly whipped you back into shape. It's like guardrails. It got you back in the right lane. So you knew clearly by the law if you were living Yahweh's way or not. So you watched the law. The law protected you from blowing yourself up if you could obey it. But the second thing was that the law shows you you can't keep the law. And so it, as a faithful Yahweh worshiper, when you couldn't keep the law and you kept having to offer sacrifices that only covered your sin for a temporary time, you would cry out to God, you've got to solve this another way. I keep sinning. And God goes, just wait. Hold on. I'm going to send somebody. And you know what he's going to do? What's he going to do, God? Because the only way I can see you saving me because I can't keep the law is if you'll just say you're forgiven. Right. Because that's what Jesus did. If you could make up a way never to have to deal with sin again, you would say, if you, could, if you would just tell me, I forgive you, that's what he did. I forgive you. So the law was given for those two reasons. It was a, protect, a protector of worshipers of Yahweh until the Messiah came. Now that the Messiah has come, it is a reminder that we can't keep the law. And that sends us now into chapter 4, and I'm going to read for you this chapter, and then I'm going to make some observations about it. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. Merry Christmas. That's what I said last week when we read this. That's Jesus. Please note, it was at the right time. Well, what does that mean? That means that God had a plan all the way back, starting in Genesis chapter 4, when he told Eve that her offspring will destroy Lucifer. 
He would crush his head. While his foot would be bruised, his head would be crushed, Lucifer's. This is the fulfillment of that, and it was exactly the right time. Born of a woman, we know her as Mary, subject to the law. He was a Jewish boy. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us to be his very own children. Now you know the purpose of it. His plan was not to save you from hell. It was to save you from being on your own. He wanted to adopt you into his family. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out daddy or father. Now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God made you his heir. It's personal with God. Do do you listen to the wording I just read? It's personal. While we go, this isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And that sounds kind of very warm and hallmarky. I want you to understand that's exactly what God wanted. It's not just people that want intimacy with, with the Holy One. It's the Holy One wants intimacy with us. How crazy is that? Before we even knew we need saving, God has already put a plan into action to make it personal, to adopt us into our family, to bring us to himself. I want to remind you that this is completely consistent with Scripture as well because after Adam and Eve sinned, who came looking for them? Adam, Eve, where are you? They were going to walk in the cool of the day like they always had, and they're hiding naked in the bushes. And he comes looking for them. I want to remind you that when Cain had decided to bring the wrong sacrifice to the right God, God came looking for Cain. Cain, what are you doing? Why are you so mad? If you bring the right sacrifice, won't I accept it? But instead of humbling himself, it is God that was chasing them. It was God seeking them. And I want to tell you that God is seeking an intimate, personal, father-child relationship with you. And some of you have no idea what that looks like because your father was abusive. Well, I'm here to tell you, in all your wildest dreams about perfect fathers, he's it. He's it. He's the perfect father. So instead of trying to come to terms with your own lack of understanding on what a father's supposed to be, how about accepting your hallmark dad as the king of kings? He is that one. He's the perfect father. I want a father who understands me. Well, he created you. I want a father who empathizes with me. Well, he does. It says that this this, uh, high priest understands all of our temptations. You know, I understand that sometimes he's going to spank me because I get out of line. Yep, it's called discipline. Everything you could possibly imagine as a father, God is. He will never sexually mistreat you. He won't even look at you in a sexualized way. He will look at you as his precious child. What an incredible story this is. This is not about how to go to heaven. This is about how to have a right relationship with God who did all the work. Back to our text, verse 8. Before you Gentiles knew God, this is today's text, and I love this. So Paul is so good. Okay, so now he's looking away. Remember, everything we've talked about is Hebraic. Everything is is the Messiah, the covenant with Abraham. Now he's going to get in their faces, Gentiles. Before you Gentiles even knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that didn't even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say God knows you, oh, back to what I just said. You see, we keep going, do you know God? Well, who cares if you know God? Everybody can identify him. Lucifer can identify him. The question is, does God know you? You see, the, question, the, the, the thing is, is he your dad? Well, I don't know, Pastor Mark. Well, you can know right now. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be adopted. Well, how do I do that? There's not a magic step. Quit asking that. Tell him you want him to be your dad. Tell him, you know, sin keeps you from that. Well, that's too easy. Too easy to go to hell for? Too easy not to have a relationship with him? 
That's the problem with this story. We keep thinking that mercy is too easy. So we try to work it out. And what happened in this text is these people believed in the mercy of God and then they started working it out after. Welcome home, Baptist. That's exactly what we grew up in. Every Sunday was another sin. We were told we had to stop. So what was our focus on? It wasn't on God. It was on us. And after you're saved, your obsession is supposed to be God. But guys like me keep telling you, you have to get over this. You have to stop being depressed. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I'm here to tell you, you can't do any of that. God has done it on your behalf. Stop looking in the mirror. God does not love you as you are. He loved you while you were yet a sinner, but he saved you to transform you into the image of his son, to change you. We've got to quit having these little memes that sound so warm and fuzzy, but are bad doctrinally. When somebody dies, they don't go to heaven to become an angel. That's a setback. You're a child. An angel's a servant. What what are we doing, church? Christians are throwing memes around that are completely out of context and completely wrong. When it says that we we were healed by his stripes, it's not talking about your gimpy arm. It's talking about your soul. God redeems broken souls. Well, I want my gimpy arm fixed. Well, then you can go to hell with a a good arm. What are you doing? The world, Satan has got us so believing that now is the most important, that we should live our best life now. And yes, he is using ministers to do it. This is never going to be your best life. The next one is, this is going to be your servant, your service. What verse? Nine. I know, I get excited about this. You are trying, uh, uh, let's see. So, you are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. I'm going to read through this and then go back over it. I fear for you. Perhaps all of my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom for these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from the law. Louise, because I'm waxing too much off my notes, we're going to jump down to the Galatians 4.8, which is the next verse you have in there, and I'm going to move on with this text because I want you to understand this. Paul begins this section in verse 8 by saying, before you Gentiles, that's the Galatian believers, before you, before you Gentiles knew God, you were slave to so-called gods that did not even exist. You know, the judgment of mankind on mankind in this life is not fire from heaven usually. That does happen a couple times, but not very often. That's why it's called supernatural, because it doesn't happen very often. It would be called normal if it did. The Romans chapter 1 tells us that the judgment of God on mankind is depravity. Depravity is, sounds like a religious word that has this huge meaning, and all it means is dark mind. You become stupid the deeper you get into sin. These Gentiles, before they knew God, were slaves to so-called gods that did not exist. And I want to read you what that looked like from Acts 14. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. They decided that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and Paul was Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside of the town. So the priests of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. Get this. So Paul and Barnabas come into this town 
to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not through people. It's through God himself. They do a miracle. That's how God validated their message. They come in. They do a supernatural event that God empowers them to do while they're preaching the gospel. And what does the town do? It's Zeus and Hermes. We've never met them before. They run to the temple. The temple brings out slaughtered animals to sacrifice to them. And they start pulling their hair out. Barnabas and Paul heard what was happening. They tore their clothing in dismay and they ran out among the people shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are merely human beings just like you. We have come to bring you the good news that you should turn from these worthless things and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. This is how depraved the Gentile culture was. The Gentile culture was worshiping everything and anything they didn't understand, including creation. They worshiped creation. They worshipped they worship these guys that they hadn't even met. This was the very region of Galatia that Paul is writing these letters to. Did you know that? These are the very same people who had heard Paul's message after this and became children of God. These were the same people who had accepted Christ's offer to show them mercy by putting the penalty of their sin on Jesus, had been set free from merely hoping that God would be gracious to them if they appeased them. So in other words, every other religion in the world, and I mean every other religion, requires you to work your way into heaven. Mormonism. You've got to be a good Mormon. If you want to ascend to the highest levels of heaven, if you want to be, guys, a, a god of your own planet, ladies, if you want to help a god and, and infiltrate a planet with people, your job is to have lots of babies. That's the Mormon doctrine in a, in a simplistic way. But in order to do that, you've got to give to the Mormon church, you've got to live as the Mormon church tells you, and you've got to be baptized in the Mormon church, and you've got to be married in the Mormon church. You, 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 you. It's not Jesus. It's you, you, you. If you're Catholic, the only way to be saved is to go through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Uh, you have to go through catechism. You have to be baptized into the Catholic Church. You have to be married in the Catholic Church. You have to give regularly to the Catholic Church. These are all sacraments. The Eucharist. You have to take the Eucharist regularly because that's how you, grace is given. You have to go through the confessional. You, 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 you. Well, Pastor, Father, if I die and I haven't confessed in a month, what happens to me? Purgatory. You, 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 you. Somewhere around the 5th, 500th century, uh, the Pope decided that a way to make money in the church is to allow people to begin praying their family members out of purgatory into heaven. So if you gave indulgences, cash to the church, and lit a candle, which still exists to this day, you can help the souls of your saved loved ones get out of heaven. You, 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 you. Who's the Savior in that? The teaching that if you pray to Mary, Jesus' mother, she can manipulate her son into doing what you want? That's Catholicism. Hey, if you are Catholic, I'm not dogging it. I'm simply saying that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And if you don't know that, my apologies, but you should ask your priest. That's exactly what they teach. If you ask them, this is not what the Bible says, they will say, well, it's what the Bible says according to the Catholic Church, because the doctrine of the Catholic Church is a marriage of Scripture and how the Church interprets it, and this is how we interpret it. So it's not salvation through faith in Christ alone, which is why Martin Luther wanted to reform the Catholic Church, that the just live by faith. I would argue that most of our Catholic Church, or our Baptist churches don't believe in salvation through faith alone. King James Bible, keeping the Ten Commandments. Well, we don't believe you can lose your salvation. Then why should I keep it? Because that's what Baptists do. 
There's like a sneaky thing. I would argue that some of us think that, that God saved us so that we can be worshipers. That's not what it says. He's got plenty of worshipers. He saved us so we could be his kids. We've allowed this to be reduced into some mumbo-jumbo that makes us feel good, and it's a different thing every week with every creative theme that's preached from the pulpit when this is what's going on in this church, and he's struggling with them. And it's the same thing that the world does. There's no difference between what they had as Gentiles before and now what they're being taught. They're beginning to walk back that faith in God alone is enough, and now they need to do self-help. And the problem is, I get it. I grew up in a church that taught salvation was through faith in Christ alone, but we began to study all these Hebraic things, and we began to have Passover feasts together, and we began to learn things like Sabbath, and there were people who were doing the Sabbath, and we started to go, oh, this is good. It makes me feel so close to God. Makes me feel close to God. So will we. Only three of you left. Let me try this again. So will marijuana. So will so will drugs, any drugs. I'm trying to think of drugs. I can't think of my mind. That's just what happened, 54. What's for lunch, Mark? It, thank you, Julie. That's twice this year you've laughed at my joke. The, the, the thing is, feel, feel, feel. That's a God. Feel, feel, feel. Do you think Stephen wife, Stephen's wife is being stoned to death is going, oh, kill him. I feel good about this. Martyrdom's my, my goal in life. What God has planned doesn't always feel good. We worship today with most of our worship music being bad doctrine, and we just sing it. Why? Because I love that song. I just love what it means. We don't even think about what we're singing. There's a song that we used to love. We used to sing it when I was in youth ministry, and I used to help lead worship with Julie, and it asked the Holy Spirit to come closer what was I doing? He lives inside of me. If he gets any closer, it's going to be alien. I mean, the Holy Spirit has to be going, what are they singing, Father? I don't know. Just let them do it. <laughs> I mean, seriously, what are we doing? We've completely left the truth of Scripture, and we've moved into this feely mumbo-jumbo, and it's not new. That's the problem, because Eve really thought she was going to help her family, and that's what these people thought. Cain thought, if I bring a different sacrifice, at least I'm going to the right God at the right place at the right time. But God said, no, I will reject you and the sacrifice if you don't bring the sacrifice I ask. And if you need clarity on the sacrifice, it's Romans 3.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of you watching online, and I know there's several of you because you talk with me, who are not sure... If, what about Jesus, but you like him. Well, let me quote Jesus out of John 14, 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And if you want more on this, just read the text around it, because he says, some come into, the, into where my sheep are, and they're liars and thieves. They've snuck over the gate, over the wall. And I want to be clear. You may think Jesus is a good guy, and that the church is too elitist, saying there's only one way, I can't believe in one way, let me be clear. Jesus taught only one way. Jesus was an elitist. Me. I'm the only way. And why did he teach that? Not because he was trying to invent a religion, because it was true. You can't save you. Fake gods can't save you. Little idols you make can't save you. 
Trying to keep the Ten Commandments can't save you. Trying to keep the 613 laws on top of the Ten Commandments can't save you. You can't save you. Well, what is my chances then? Only one. God's saying, I'm not going to hold your sin against you. Well, I don't want that way. Then go to hell. Sorry. There's no option. There's no halfway. And we've forgotten that. Not you. We as a church. The body of Christ has forgotten that our, our hope is God. Our, our hope is in eternity with him. So he writes to them. And he says, uh, uh, well, let's get back to Galatians 4, verse 8. Before you Galatians knew God, you were slaves to the so-called God that didn't exist. So now that you know God, or should I say that God knows you, why would you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. Okay, so I've got to make a comment about this and then we'll move quickly. First of all, uh, Galatians talks a lot about circumcision. So what has happened is as we teach on Galatians, we think these people were coming in and saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. And I read this week a commentary that's saying, look, this really isn't about the Ten Commandments not being good for life. He's wrong. This is really just about salvation. So once you're saved, you should memorize the law and keep it. The problem with that is that's not at all what he's saying. What he is saying in this text is not only is circumcision being taught, but you've already decided to adopt the days, uh, the certain days. Okay, so now they're observing the Sabbath as the day of worship, Saturday. Months, you're deciding that not to, to move away from the Gentile calendar. Now you're following the Hebraic calendar and seasons or years. In other words, you've abandoned every Gentile thing you grew up with in order to be made better with God. You were saved by faith, but now you're trying to do betterment by going back to the old way. That's exactly what you got saved from. Paul is clear in the next verse how he feels about that. Verse 11, I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I've become like you, free from those laws. All right, two things, and I know I'm moving quickly, but you think quickly. So, number one, they have moved back Paul has become like them, like Gentiles. I don't need the law to save me. It's Jesus Christ, so I'm free from the law. And Paul's saying, you're becoming like I was before I even got saved. Do you, do you see that? This is a huge statement because Paul is perplexed. And, and Paul's question here is a question that you are going to have when we get into Galatians 5. I'm telling you right now because I'm already having it. And that is, I'm wondering if it's... It, you know, if you're even part of us, uh, what, what is his exact wording? Uh, let me go back. I'm trying to earn faith with God by the law. Hmm, why do you want to go back? I'm trying to earn favor. I fear for you. He says, I fear for you. Perhaps all my work, hard work with you was for nothing. In other words, in some texts of, the, of Galatians, he says, I know you're saved. And in this one, he goes, I don't, I, I don't know what to call you. What do you call a person who by faith gets saved and then lives in their flesh? We call them backsliders, but Paul's opening the door here for they're not saved. I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but when we get into Galatians 5, I got news for you. If you are sleeping with somebody else's wife in the name of Jesus, you have every right, and you're not feeling shame or guilt or any kind of remorse about that, and you have no interest in going back because you're happy over here, you should question your salvation. You should. If you don't have any shame over the sin you're living, whether it's an attitude, the way you treat people, the way you look at God, if you have no shame, 
that says that there's a vacuum inside where the Holy Spirit's supposed to be. It's not a problem for a believer to struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. It's a problem for somebody who claims to believe or not claims to be a believer who doesn't struggle with sin. And that's the weird thing we're living in today's society. We've got the church even questioning whether you can be having sex with somebody of the same sex and be right with God. You can't have sex with somebody of the opposite sex if you're not married and be right with God. What have we done? We're making little parenthetical exceptions for holiness. You see, holiness isn't about what you want or what makes you happy or how you were created. Holiness is about God recreating you by the power of the Holy Spirit, raising you from the dead, and transforming us into the image of His Son. It is not a once-for-all thing. It is a one-time transformation that is a process called sanctification for the rest of your life. If we are not becoming more like Jesus, then who are we becoming more like? There is no neutral ground. You're either becoming more like Jesus or you're becoming less like Him. And, and, and it seems like the church is trying to be as friendly with sinners as they can to say, you're okay, God loves you as you are. At which scripture goes, no, yes, he saved you while you were yet sinner. And yeah, he sent his son to, because he loves you. But his dream for you is to be made in the image of his son and to be a joint heir with Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? We, we, it's almost like we're going, how sinful can I be and still be saved? And the answer is, you can't be sinful at all. Well, wait a minute, so... Are you saying then that uh, if I sin like the Church of Wells says, I'm going to hell? No. I'm saying that your sinfulness was exchanged with Jesus' righteousness and you are declared holy at the moment of salvation. But if you can leave that relationship moment and you don't care about God at all, who are you in love with? Now we're back at the Church of Ephesus. They love doctrine. They loved what they believed and they loved having good teachers. And they even found pride in persecution but they didn't love Jesus. What do you call that? I would argue you call that church today in this country. We've married nationalism with Christianity. And so we're mad at the government and we're doing it in the name of Jesus. I got a letter last week from somebody saying that uh, he is about to start a movement that will split churches. And it will split churches based upon if your pastor is preaching conservative politics. Because that's what Christians in America do. And he believes it with all of his heart, and his few verses out of context endorse it. And some of you will follow. Let me be clear. God is not in heaven worried about the United States of America. I have like four or five funny things to say right now, but... <laughs> Listen... I'm, trying, I'm going to be careful because this will be on Facebook this afternoon. God is not worried about the United States of America. He wants a relationship with her people. This country will work itself out if its people will humble themselves and turn to God. And you know what? It should start in the church because we are a mad group of people. Over vaccination and not vaccinating and over Biden and over Trump and over... You know what? We should keep our, fix, our fixation and our obsession on Jesus. So you think we should let this country go to hell in a handbasket? I voted, did you? I'm going to vote again next year. <laughs> yeah, but you need to do more. What do you want me to do? You want me to get up here every week and talk about how stupid our government is? All you're going to do is amen it. And you won't even know which side I'm talking about. Yeah, you will, because I'm not that good at hiding it. <laughs> the, the, the truth is, 
We can get up here every week, and it sure is easy to talk about those gay and gay marriage and those people that are lazy and those wicked Hollywood lights that are ruining our culture. Are they ruining it or are they reflecting it? You see, the truth is, I'm not worried about the world. The world is acting like the world. What about the church? What about the fact that we keep burying people who have no fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence in their life and calling them Christians? That's a problem for Paul. And it should be a problem for us. So you want us to go around judging? I don't want you to do anything, but 2 Corinthians 5.12 says yes. We don't judge those outside of the church, but we certainly judge those inside of the church. You see, this thing we've got is a family. And it's because we've been adopted into God's family, and it's not always easy. And it goes against the flow. That's why it's called the upside-down kingdom. It goes against the flow, where, where, where when the government wrongly tells you to carry the backpack of some military guy you don't respect for one mile, what did Jesus say? Carry it, too. Well, he wasn't talking about, you know, wrong things like masks. He wasn't. Yeah, he was talking about easy things like carrying the packs of Roman military who don't like you. How about paying taxes? For those of you who've read the book on why taxes should be illegal or are illegal, I just want to remind you that when Jesus was told to pay taxes, he paid them. Now, he got it out of a fish's mouth. That doesn't seem to work as well for me, but <laughs> the truth is we are not here as a revolutionary movement in politics. We are here as a revolutionary movement of the soul, that by faith in Christ alone, you can have a relationship with the living God who won't just make you a peasant or an angel. He will make you his child. You should be offended when somebody dies and they say he's an angel or she's an angel because that's a reduction in status for a child of God. It's so much better than we even lie about. And for us, when you find that you're not measuring up to what the Holy Spirit tells you should, don't become Jewish. Get on your face before God and say, thank you for grace. Let's go. That's the difference. In Hebrews 10, 23, it tells us to hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Look at that. It's his promise. We are actually a better name for us, children of promise. When you start doubting your salvation, I've blown it. Why would God save me? The answer to your brother or sister is because he promised you. And he can't break his promise. Not only he won't break his promise, he can't break his promise to you. In Romans 10, 9-13, some of you may be wondering, how is a person saved? If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you jump down to verse 13, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The problem with the believers in the Galatian region was like the Ephesian believers, they had become so enthralled and in love with this new wonderful group of people called the church, called religion, that they fell out of love with their Savior and His work. They wanted a Christianity with less Christ and more self. Think about that. While sounding like the gospel, we learned back in the day, it was another gospel altogether, Paul said. This was always about bringing us into a right relationship with God, not starting a cultural, national, worldwide moral movement. It was reconciliation with God and his favorite creation, you. That's all. 
In Galatians 4, 13. They had forgotten that it began and ended with the Trinity's work. It not only took their love of Jesus away, but also for those who stood firm in the truth. Watch what happens. Verse 13. You didn't mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you didn't despise me or turn away. No, you took me in and you cared for me. As though I were an angel from God or even Christ himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if that had been possible. Have I become your enemy because I am telling you what's true? These false teachers are so eager to win their favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do them all the time, not just when I'm with you. You see, there is fruit of loving Christ and being led by the Spirit, Galatians 5, but there is also fruit of loving the church more than you love God. And I take you back to Revelation 2. Jesus says to the church of Ephesus, I know all the things you do. These are part of the fruit of somebody more in love with Christianity than Christ. I have seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but they're not. You've discovered they're liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. That sounds like the American church to me, and it's a good thing. But here's the other fruit of it. I have this one complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. And that's exactly what happened in Galatians. They don't love God and they don't trust Him. So Paul has to remind them that their salvation is based upon His promises. And they really don't like Him. Why? Because He's standing strong in the truth. And you want to know how it affected Him? Galatians 4 verse 19, the very, very next verse, Oh my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. In other words, i got a knot in my stomach over this. And they're going to continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I'm going to have this knot in my stomach that I love you so much, and I can't believe that you're not only rejecting me, you're rejecting the gospel. You've got to get back. This is painful. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I don't know how else I can help you. So... Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you even know what the law actually says? You know, I love that question. We're going to end there. I love that question because the answer is no. They didn't grow up in Judaism. You see, they thought the, the law was ten, ten Commandments. They thought the law was circumcision. They thought the law was a yarmulke and an interesting meal uh, at Passover. That's what they thought the law was, just like every Gentile I know that loves to study Hebraic things. They have no idea that there were 613 other laws that they had to follow perfectly in order to be right with God without His help. You know what's funny about that? You have to start keeping the 613 plus 10 without sin. See, if you start with sin, you're just a bad omelet. You're a good omelet made with a rotten egg. You still stink, no matter how beautiful you are. And that's why it can only be salvation through faith in Christ alone. And, I, and, and you're probably sitting here, and I, and I know I've been preaching a long time, and I've been rambling. I know it's easy to go, we get this, Mark. Why is this such a big deal? Because you are secretly and quietly being distracted from Jesus by the modern church. With politics, with gay rights movement, with America's not what she once was, with, I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention is splitting 
all this stuff, it's noise, like, what happened to Andy Griffith? And I'm here to tell you, it was never what they portrayed on TV in the first place. Get your eyes on Jesus. He's our only hope. He's your only hope if you get COVID and are unvaccinated, and he's your only hope if you are not COVID-inflicted and vaccinated. Because guess what? On your way to bragging that you've been vaccinated, you're going to get hit by a truck. That's the problem. Nobody. I think my phone just told me there's a Fox News alert. I forgot to silence it. Listen, you guys, it's all Jesus. It's not Carpenter's way and Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. It will always be only Jesus. So here we go. We're going to wrap up. Here's what I want you to do. If you're sitting here going, man, how do I know if it's all Jesus or Jesus in me? How do I know if my mind is wrong? Would you please go to Jesus and just tell him you want it to be all about him? Don't make it complicated. There are not five steps to good, faithful servants of the Lord. There's one. Surrender. We've made it so complicated. Pastor Mark, I think you should write a book on surrendering to the Lord. Well, it would be the shortest book ever. Pretend there's a gun to your head, and there is, and lift your hands and say, help. Or here's the prayer. Here's the prayer in the Bible. The only sinner's prayer you find in all of Scripture. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, there's got to be an altar walk prayer in the Bible. There's not. There's not a rapture in there. There's just Jesus. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And now that you're saved, with every ounce of your being, don't try to perfect yourself on your own. If you're not where you need to be spiritually, get on your knees in your room alone and tell God you're not where you need to be spiritually and you're ready. Come change me. Be my delight. Transform me from the inside out. Help me not to become obsessed with the Ten Commandments. Help me but obsessed with your Holy Spirit. Father God, may that be our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a wonderful Sunday. It is beautiful out there. Make sure you spend time outside.